Well, this last Thursday, January 3rd, uh, a brother from this congregation sent me a a link to a a news article. And the news article was one of the top stories of the Fox News radio. And people send me stuff all the time. Sometimes I look at it, sometimes I don't, because I just have a massive volume of email coming in constantly. News, you know, just floods in uh, everywhere. Text messaging on the, you know, TV, internet, so forth. But this one piqued my curiosity because the, the title of this particular um, article um, was this. Uh, the title, Patriotic, Patriotic Group Told to Stop Praying in Jesus' Name. So I saw this and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting, so I'll read the, you know, the article. This has to do with religion and culture. And as you know, there's a great culture war going on, and some people don't want the name of Jesus there in print. So I read it, and it's uh, basically the group spoken of here is the Daughters of, of the American Revolution, um, or DAR for short. And from what I read, it's one of the oldest patriotic organizations in the country, founded, I think, in 1880 or 1890. It's over 120 years old. And um, the article goes on to say that the leadership of this particular organization, which was founded firmly in the Christian faith, um, that is, the people who started it were Christians and committed to the cause of Christ and wanted to celebrate the, the, the goodness of God in our country, um, well, those who founded it were firmly uh, rooted in the Christian faith. But here we are in the 21st century, and the, the, the leadership of this particular organization decided to erase the name of Jesus from its literature, uh, from its um, uh, chaplain guides, from its written prayers, and so forth. So they have erased the name of Jesus, and in place of it, they have, have uh, opted for the more generic word God, which People of all different kind of religions could, could, could affirm that or pray that because God is generic. God of uh, Islam, God of the Mormons, God of Jehovah's Witness, and so forth and so on. Well, as you can imagine, the people who are in this organization who still carry that sense of um, Christ and, and Jesus and, and believe in his kingdom, um, they're outraged by it, which is why this article exists, um, kind of up in arms. And I can sympathize as a person if I was in that organization and and um, you look back and you see the kind of the fingerprints of, of Jesus in this movement and then being told that I, I have to not pray in the name of Jesus, I think I'd be a little upset too. And my guess is if you were in that organization and you're here and you're a Christian who really wants to follow Jesus and, and reserve, uh, resolve to follow Jesus, you probably feel that too. Unfortunately, this, uh, stories like this, as you well know, are, are, um, are many. This isn't like the first time that you've heard something like this. This is uh, just one of of many stories of of the systematic erasing of Jesus' name from the public sector. And just to bring up this particular article, of course, it's not an eye-opening experience for you. In fact, I was thinking it's kind of sad that we become accustomed to stories just like this, of Jesus' name being systematically erased from public life and being replaced with the more generic name, God, which isn't going to exist very long either, I don't think. Now, Christians react in different ways, and my guess is different reactions even in this room when you read things like this, or you just see the overall direction of culture. We, we feel like we're in a river, and it's moving in a direction that's contrary to Jesus, and whatever we try to do just doesn't even stop the flow. Sometimes Christians feel alarmed and anxious and um, depressed, helpless, um, scrambling for ways to f- reverse the flow. You know, when I read this, I want to tell you that, honestly, I, while, while there is this part of me that's sad because it's almost like the defacing of our, of our heritage, and it is a, it's a pretty uh, eye-opening, sobering um, s- 
statement of the spirit of our times, there's another part of me that it really isn't alarmed or surprised at all. And I don't mean that to offend anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm not bothered by it in the sense that it's not going to work. That is, you can't erase the name of Jesus. You really can't. You know, think back historically with me just for a moment. Um, this agenda or this aim to erase the name of Jesus from public life is not a new agenda of the 21st or 20th century secular culture. From the very beginning, it was the aim or the agenda to silence the name of Jesus. You go all the way back to the very earliest records of the church written in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, verse 17, we're told that the powers that be, told the disciples, don't speak and teach in this name. They wanted to effectively erase the name of Jesus from the vocabulary of the people who were, who were teaching in his name. It didn't work. The name of Jesus continued to be spoken, continued to be taught, and Jerusalem itself could not stop or erase the name of Jesus in the first century. just couldn't be done. See, this is an age-old agenda, and it's an agenda that's not just a, a political human agenda. It's a satanic agenda. Think of the first three centuries of the church, church history. You read it carefully. First, second, third century, there were systematic attempts by the powers of Rome to stamp out this thing called Christianity and erase the name of Jesus. Systematic persecutions and massacres. And it didn't work. In fact, the name of Jesus became so prolific and this Christian movement became so, so big that rather than try to fight it, they figured this is, this is a time to actually join it. It's a politically um, advantageous thing to adopt Christianity because it's so prolific. They couldn't snuff out the name of Jesus. Rather, they had to join it, um, which in my opinion was a dark beginning of a dark path of church history when we, Christianity and powers, merged. You think about the last century, 20th century. There was systematic, wholehearted attempts to erase the name of Jesus in communist Russia, China, and Korea. It didn't work. It didn't work. And I'll tell you why it didn't work and why it's never going to work. You may be able to erase his name from a printed page or from a piece of stone or concrete. But you can never erase the name of Jesus from the lips and hearts of those who have been so radically transformed by the power of his love and what he has done for us and who he is. People can't help but speak about it when they've experienced the life-transforming power of his kingdom. And that cannot be silenced. No amount of power or empires or kings or presidents can ever stamp that out, which is why I'm not troubled. Jesus cares more about his name than you and I do. And at the end of history, we're told that every knee will bow and confess that his name is the name above every name. Can't stomp that out. That's why we shouldn't be troubled. And for me, I, I would like us to go into a new year in 2013, despite the cultural climate that we live in, with a sense of confidence and a sense of courage that I think is becoming of a true follower of Jesus. Rather than kind of a, a defeatist, uh, well, the tide's against us, and so I'm going to be anxious, and I'm not going to walk through that door because I'm afraid. But rather the sense of confidence and courage that I believe a true follower of Christ should have. And I want to draw you to a truth. One single verse, and actually it's one single sentence, to keep it short for communion, just to, to remind you of where our courage and where our confidence comes from as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And I'm assuming, I realize this is a, 
It's not always a faulty assumption, but I'm assuming you're gathered here and most of you know Jesus, you're, you're, you're professing to trust in Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that most of us um, are seeking his kingdom first, or at very least we're seeking to seek his kingdom first. If we're not, that's not our heart, and we're gathered here, then we probably have to, you probably have to go back to the beginning and ask the question, do I really know Jesus at all? Because when you come to know Christ in a saving way, his kingdom becomes the foremost in one's life. And at times when it isn't, there's still a seeking of wanting to seek his kingdom first. Well, for those of us who are seeking, at very least seeking to seek his kingdom first, you're going to be given opportunities this year, and you're going to have doors open. Or maybe you're just told to just keep going. I want us to have the truth to enter that door, go through that door, and carry on the ministry of Christ with confidence and courage. And one of the verses that, that gives me courage when I just stop and reflect on it is found in the closing portions of Paul's great letter to the Roman Christians, or the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 20. It's some of his final comments. And oftentimes I find when I get to the end of one of those letters of Paul, I kind of read really fast because there's a lot of names and so forth. Well, let me just say that I've, I've rethought that approach to the end of the books, especially this one, because there is this statement that he makes at the end of the, the book to the Roman Christians living under the weight of Rome. And he says this, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Just stop and let that first sentence soak in just a bit. Like, let it, like breathe it in and, and, and think about its ramifications. The God of peace, the shalom, will soon crush, love the word, crush Satan under your feet. Now, this is not a statement of wish or contingency. This is a statement that Paul makes of conviction and of certainty, and it comes to us in the form of a promise. You notice he didn't write, the God of peace may soon crush Satan under your feet. He did not write, the God of peace might soon crush Satan under your feet. There is a sense of certainty and conviction behind it, as if he knows for an absolute fact that the powers of darkness are going to be crushed under the feet of Christians living in Rome. Now that's confidence. It's confidence. And it comes to us in the form of a promise. What's true for Roman Christians is certainly true for Parkway Christians and American Christians. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's equally important to recognize is the political and cultural context into which these, the people who he's writing to live. These are Roman Christians, and, and Christians at the early part of the, uh, the first century were oftentimes poor, unresourced, had limited influence, a lot of them were slaves. They weren't people of high standing, they weren't people of power, they weren't people of prestige. They had very little power to do anything. And they lived under the thumb or under the tyranny of the most powerful empire, not to mention pagan empire of the day. So if any Christian was to feel a sense of panic and alarm and a sense of fear and anxiety, it would be Christians living under the weight of a pagan organization that was, would try through three centuries to try and stamp it out. And he says to these people, unresourced, weak, poor, often slave people, he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Now, Paul has a perspective here, a lens by which he sees life and the world that I don't think many 21st century Christians living in America have. That he didn't look at the world through the lens of humanistic politics. That he wasn't looking at it that way. Well, let's see, if we get the right guy in office and we get the right number of the majority of this particular party, then well, maybe, maybe God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. He didn't think that way. He didn't see through the lens of, of earthly powers sitting on the throne, be that Caesar, Claudius, Nero, or whoever, who wielded massive amounts of power. He didn't really give a lot of weight to that, nor does he give a lot of weight as to who our president is in terms of the lens. I submit to you that the lens by which Paul saw the world and he wrote this statement is that he understood that post-cross, post-resurrection, that we live in the triumph of Jesus who is Lord of all. We live in a state of triumph as Christians, of conquest, because he is already reigning as Lord of all. Now that just sounds probably to you like, well, that just sounds like theology. No, it's truth. And it's truth that if it's believed, it makes all the difference in one's life. That that's the lens by which he saw it. That something happened to change the nature of the world and, and the status of things that gave him the lens of victory. That he could actually say something like this to people who were unresourced, weak, and often poor. You know the gospel story um, and it has to be told and told again and again. I, I, I don't want you to close your minds because of familiarity, but the, the amazing, astounding, ironic, paradoxical truth about the Christian Bible truth gospel is that the powers that, that held the world in its firm grip, the power of the prince of the power of the air, of the devil, of, of his minions, and, and how it works itself out in the life of creation, and the power of, of, of those dominions because of sin and death, those powers, worldly powers, were fundamentally and definitively broken by a single event, and that is in the death of Jesus at his cross. And the Bible insists this to be true, that when Jesus died and took the place of sinners when he died under the weight of the curse to release the creation from the curse and the people of God from the curse, well, that, that fundamentally altered reality from that time forth. And we're supposed to live in that altered reality that Christ has conquered through the cross and through his resurrection. That's why we find statements like Revelation 12, 11, which we sing in one of the songs, I think it's titled Overcome, where we read that, Christians conquered, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood is what brings about the conquest, uh, the state of victory, the state of, of um, us being in a position no longer of loss, but one of win. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The conquest has already taken place, and Christians are supposed to live in that light not in the veil of, of defeat or somehow we're losing the war because he has already conquered. 
That's why Paul could say, and this is backing up into Romans chapter 8, and he could declare over the Christians in Rome who would have felt the weight of, of oppression, he could write, we are, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave his life for us. Did you stop and just think of the significance of we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. The limitations of conquest have been broken. You're far more than in victory. And notice it's not in the future tense like we will be more than conquerors when Jesus comes back and wipes the slate clean and, 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 and you know, restores all things. It's not future. It's a present status. It's a present reality. We are more than conquerors already. And he's declaring this over Roman Christians. And if it was true of Roman Christians who were so depleted in terms of their influence and strength, then we too also have this declared over us that those of us who have come to trust in Jesus, we've come to love him and experience his transforming grace in our lives. We understand we're forgiven. We understand we have a future hope and a home. And we live in that reality. We are right now sitting here while I speak. You sit, you listen more than in a place of conquerors. Christian, that's how you need to see yourself because that's how Paul saw you and that's how God sees the situation. Not how our world views the situation or paints it in its media presentations. Our minds have to be shaped by truth, not by lies. By God, not by a culture. And the fact of the matter is, is that because he died and rose again, the Bible insists over and over again, the New Testament from beginning to end, that all authority has already been granted to the Son of God. Matthew 28. And the words are staggering. If they get in here, not just here, when he says, all authority has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. It's already been given to me. The reins over the world have already been given to me as the rightful and all-powerful king. We're told in Philippians 2 that he has already been highly exalted, already been given a name that is above every name. We don't have to wait for the, the end of history for, to know that his name is already chief, preeminent, supreme. Ephesians 1.22 that God has already put all things under his feet. And when it says all things, it means all things. Nothing to be excluded. It's already been placed underneath the feet of his reign. That Jesus already rules and sits at the right hand of the Father as the lamb that was slain, calling forth the worship of all of heaven. That is a reality right now, not just in the future. And the Christian is supposed to live in that light. And the Christians who have been most successful in making an impact in their culture have been people who have believed that truth. Not just spoken about it like it's some piece of theology that makes no difference to life. To know that he actually rules, he actually reigns right here, right now. He already stands triumphant. He already is Lord of all, and that's the light in which we live, and that's why he can say we already are because of him who loved us and gave his life for us. We are already more than conquerors. And it's interesting, in this particular verse, the first one, the 1620, the way in which the lamb that was slain, the way in which Jesus, who right now reigns over all, implements his reign 
is by crushing Satan under your feet. Really? Just got to ask you, really? Like, think of what you know about the devil, you know? Satan. I mean, he's, he's, he is the chief enemy, the prince of the power of the air, the one who blinds the minds of those who don't see, who has quite a bit of, 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 of demonic authority and power. And yet, God is going to crush him with your feet. Roman Christians who were, you know, low. Parkway Christians who may feel like they don't have a lot of influence or political clout. Your feet. As we, as we humbly trust him, live for him, live in faith, hope, and love, and seek to speak out the wonder of his transforming grace in our lives as we experience it day and day and day, um, experiencing more measures of his grace in life, that he is in the process of bringing his reign in through his people. That's, a, that's the part we get to play. Now granted, it's not by our power. God is the subject of the verb crush. The God of peace will soon crush but it's actually magnificent, staggering, astounding that he would do it with these feet as I simply and as you simply seek to live out our Christianity in simple faith in this world, in Fairfield, in your, 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 on your street, in your business or your career or whatever it is. And he's doing that because he reigns. He is already Lord of all and we have to live in that light. Now I know what you're thinking and probably what you're feeling. <laughs> All right, Dan, I hear what you're saying. I get the theology part down. Jesus reigns, he's conquered, and therefore we are more than conquerors because of him. And that's how we ought to see ourselves. But have you read the news lately? In my experience, Dan, it seems like we're losing. Um, people I talk to, not only do they not want to talk about Jesus, they don't even want to talk about God in the generic sense. And it seems for all observable reasons that we're not more than conquerors. We're actually being conquered. Like so, so New Testament says one thing and our experience says another. Let me ask you this. What are you going to believe? Because experience can lie. We can't see the, the spiritual dimensions of what happens in a person's soul? What happens in a community? What is happening in a community that nobody wants to report? That perhaps just like leaven in a lump of dough, it's happening without it being even seen? They're erasing Jesus' name, Dan. We're losing. To that, I'd have to say, you know, brothers, sisters, um, from the very beginning, we were told to live not by sight, which is what we see with our physical eyes, which can easily be deceived. David Copperfield can deceive people. But by faith in what God has declared and has shown through history to be true. We trust his word. We trust that it says that Jesus reigns over all things. So I trust that he does. And I don't want to trust just with my head. I want to trust with my heart. And so I Pray to you. The other thing to keep in mind is, is how Jesus won and conquered and triumphed. That peace can't be missed. 
that he won by dying. And with eyes of flesh, seeing Jesus die on the cross, if you were one of his followers, you would have thought, and I would have thought, game over. We forget the despair on Good Friday. His disciples thought, game over. The people who killed him thought, game over. We put this guy to death. This movement is done. It's finished. I can see Jerusalem Post saying, would-be Messiah slain, uh, disciples scatter, done, finished. Pilate thinks it's done, and the Jerusalem powers thinks it's done. Lo and behold, just when it seems like it's done, it's won. And that's the, that's the, the, the amazing part about how God has chosen to bring about salvation in ways we don't expect or think, or that he would bring life through death, that he would bring conquest through a seeming defeat. That's how he conquered, through his death, suffering. When everybody else thought it was a loss, it was a win for God. And the fact of the matter is, that is how it works and how it's continued to work through history with Christians and something we have to get our heads around. That it's not when we're winning with, with massive amounts of worldly power, when our guys in office or a party, whatever party you happen to believe is the party, is uh, in the majority. It's, that's, that really is not, um, that's not how we win. It's not how we win. In fact, it's actually when it seems like we're losing, when simple people who in simple faith are following Jesus and seeking to genuinely and authentically love people and love him and willing to testify to God's goodness to us through Christ, that we actually are seeing the darkness trudged over by our feet. And even though we can't see it, it's, it's happening. So if the cross taught us that when everything seems lost, there's actually a victory happening, then it would seem to me, even when it seems like we're losing, as long as we're being faithful to trust and love and speak, then God is winning and we have to see victory through the eyes of the cross, not through the lens of the world. So this is a, a perspective shift for us. That if we take this truth, that because Jesus has already triumphed, he already reigns. He already is the Lord of all. And therefore, we already are more than conquerors. Not just because he paid for our sin, but because he now stands as Lord of heaven and earth. Then we will find the strength and the courage um, this year to actually walk through those doors if we see things in this light. But I'll tell you, it's a, it's a huge distance between just knowing a truth, like I just said, knowing this verse, knowing this promise, this certainty, this conviction, and actually believing it here. There's no power in just knowing a truth. But when a truth is believed, when it takes on reality, like, wow, this is true, then, then it creates a massive amount of energy and motivation and passion to go and do things for the Lord when this truth sinks into belief. That's what we need for a new year in 2013. You might say, does it work, Dan? Because I, I don't know. I absolutely do believe it works. One example, and then we'll partake of bread and cup together. 
And it's an example that I have uh, just been feeding on for probably the last couple of weeks. Um, as you know, I, I like to read biographies of people, and every year I try to do a biographical message. Well, this next year is going to be Abram Kuyper is his name. And I'm already feeling the sense of, of um, power of his life. And let me just tell you just a snippet about it. And don't, don't turn me off. Just listen for just a second. Abram Kuyper, a man who lived end of 1800s, beginning of 1900s, a man deeply committed to the cause of Christ, and amazingly, a unique combination of theologian, statesman, and politician. Three combinations you don't always find together. And yes, a Christian can be a politician. In fact, we need more truly devoted Christians to be in the ministry of politics. But he was all three of those ministering in the Netherlands. And in, in, the, in the course of his lifetime, listen to what he's able to accomplish. He, is, he founded a seminary, or seminary, a university by the name of uh, the Free University of Amsterdam. He started a political party. He served as uh, the president or head of state uh, for a number of years. Uh, he started his own uh, denomination of, 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 of believers and so forth. And he wrote all kinds of books and essays and spoke and gave lectures all over the world. Abram Kuyper. And you dig into, okay, well, what was the engine that drove this, this, this soul to, to accomplish so much in the name of Jesus? He was a cultural, political reformer of his day. What would enable a person to, to, to launch with that kind of, of desire and passion? And it really came down to one thing. The simple confidence that Jesus is already owner of all things. Or let me put it in his words, because his words are so much better than, than mine. It's one of my favorite quotes that I've ever come across. And um, this is what it is. He writes, There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's just awesome. It was his confidence. I'm going to build a university. Why? Because this place is his. You got to read that again. There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now imagine if you and I actually believe that, that, that Christ shouts over Washington, D.C., mine. And he shouts over uh, Sacramento, seats of power, mine. And he shouts over Fairfield, mine, over the jungles of Ecuador. This is mine. And God's people knowing this is already his. We're taking what is rightfully his. Mine. When we do ministry, take opportunities, we do so in the confidence that he already rules, and this world is his. We're just doing his bidding as his people. And as we trust him in that process, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. This is personal. Parkway. The God of peace, 2013, will, for those who trust me and are willing to live in simple humility and faith and love and willing to share their faith when they have opportunity, if you'll do that, then you're going to see that Satan is going to be crushed as you proceed forward and walk in 2013. And I hope that's, you'll let that be your banner perhaps this year. Mine. 
mine. Christ cries over all things. This is mine. And to live in the confidence, courage, and conviction of, of that truth. Now we're going to celebrate that truth with the Lord's Supper. Many of you know what this table represents. It's not, I mean, it's much more than just a table. It represents the fact that, that um, Jesus died for us, that, that event of triumph when he died. But it also looks forward to the time in which we will gather at his table, a real table, face to face, and we will celebrate with him in the new creation. And um, so as you come this morning, I just um, ask yourself, do I believe what was just said? Do I actually believe that the whole earth is Christ's and that I want to have, praying, Lord, give me the courage that this is indeed true and I am already more than a conqueror through him who loved me and gave his life for me. So as you come, maybe think about that banner and perhaps your resolve and prayer to believe this truth that we might take those opportunities in 2013 and see God work in amazing ways. If you're new and don't know how we take communion, uh, you're visiting, if you're a follower of Jesus, because this is for his followers, um, then when John starts the music, um, feel free to just come forward. You can take it with your family. You can take it back to your seat. Some people like to kneel at the, um, at the stairs and just take it privately. That's fine. Um, we just want you to come and join in the one body around one table because of our one Lord um, that we uh, have as our Savior and King. Um, let me pray, and as I do, uh, for those of you who are serving communion, if you could come forward, um, take your place. Father, we are grateful and thankful for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you already do reign. Help us to believe that truth that we can't see with our own eyes, and help us to live with courage and conviction, to live with passion and drive, knowing that all the world is yours. You've already declared mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.